I'm tired of that question when I say my favorite TV show is Survivor. Yes, it is still on the air. Oh my God. Millions of people. <laughs> Welcome to the Bronova Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. All right, everybody, welcome along to the Bro Nouveau Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Pierce. Thanks for being here. Today, I am super stoked to present a very impactful conversation with Clay. Clay is a close person to our family. He's like a brother to me. And we talk about his experience growing up with anxiety in his childhood and how he developed that skill set to live with and manage anxiety to the point now where his quality of life is not impeded. This is of personal interest to me as I am someone who deals with anxiety. For a lot of people out there, last year's lockdown was not great for mental health and definitely sparked some anxiety. So this is a very relevant and salient topic. For the men out there who are interested in dating women, and can't really seem to figure out what's going wrong. We have some common sense dating tips from Clay. I say common sense, but that's not too common anymore. <laughs> so, you know, it's there for you if, if that's if that's what you're looking for. So get stuck in, have a look at the show notes for timestamps so you can jump around and give it up for Clay. Thank you. All right, Clay. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. I'm excited to to talk with you today. Yeah, it's good to good to be here virtually, our little salon. Hell yeah, man. Well, wanted to have you on today um, because you are very well versed in a topic that affects a lot of people, anxiety. And I, th- I think I look up to you as somebody who has a good understanding of it. And I thought it'd be great to get your perspective. So one question I'll lead you off with, I've heard anxiety and depression categorized this way as depression is worrying about the past and anxiety worrying about the future. How does that resonate with you? Yeah, I actually don't know if that's that's right for me. Um, I think of anxiety as just like a general worrying. For me, it manifests not only about the future, but also what I've done in the past and whether what I've done in the past is good enough or um, sufficient. Or if I'm like reflecting on a social interaction, I'll wonder if something I did was off-putting or if people liked me or how I came across. So I think anxiety for me, I have generalized anxiety. So it's just like a constant state of unease. And I think that that um, isn't limited to just the future. I think it's both the future and the past. I would say it's like a 50-50 split, but actually maybe like 75 future, 25% the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I tend to, if I have an interaction and I feel like I said the wrong thing or was off-putting, it really sticks with me. Yeah, it stays with you. And then Mm -hmm. you kind of, it informs like how you think about that person because you're thinking about how they think about you. And then that kind of like affects your ongoing relationship without them even knowing, which is kind of like a one bad thing about anxiety is that it's a lot of it's just in your own head which mm-hmm. I don't mean that in like a diminishing kind of way, but I just mean it in like a, it's a solo experience and you're a lot of times projecting things onto other people that isn't always there. Right. And that totally can impact the relationship in a real way when for the other person, it wasn't a thing. Oh, totally. Totally. Awesome, man. So for the listeners, how about a little introduction about, uh, you know, who are you? 
you know, what's your, what's your path, your life story a little bit? Sure. So, um, my name is Clay. I am 27 years old. I just finished my first year of law school. Um, I live in San Francisco, California. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in southwestern Virginia. And then I went to college at the University of Virginia. I studied politics in Russian. I lived in Russia for a bit. And I've lived in Istanbul and spent some time in Israel. And then after I graduated, I lived and worked in D.C. before I came out to San Francisco. Booyah. I didn't know that about Istanbul. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. That's probably my favorite um, city internationally, I guess. Mm-hmm. Great, great time. So growing up on the dairy farm, there probably wasn't much chatter about mental health, if I'm going to no. be uh, uh, presumptive. <laughs> Definitely not. It's, <laughs> I also come from a pretty waspy background, so um, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about emotions. If anything, emotions were seen as kind of like uh, embarrassing if mm-hmm. somebody that we knew had like an emotional kind of outburst or like expression of intense emotion that was kind of seen as like uncouth. Like that was a very private thing that they were subjecting people in public to and kind of like bad manners. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that also affected like interpersonal um, emotional relationships with each other. Um, I think it's something that as like, me and my siblings have gotten older and more comfortable with ourselves and like our place in the world and like get new experiences and stuff. I think that we're kind of shifting the conversation to include more holistic looks at like emotions and not just talking about what we did like factually, but also like how we felt while we were doing those things. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's always like a work in progress, I think with how we were raised and how our parents were raised and how their parents were raised and just like a generational kind of avoidance of those topics. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never heard about it as a faux pas. Is that more of a, a Southern mm. kind of pattern or? Yeah. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, it, that would make sense to me because uh, the South has its own kind of like rules and expectations for public behavior and what's normal and not normal. So that could totally be a Southern thing. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I will say you have impeccable manners. So thank you. I appreciate that. It's noted. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My grandma really, we had to go to like manners boot camp at her house when we were kids. Like all of the cousins would come and we would like run through stuff like that. Uh, it sounds kind of brutal. Yeah. You know, it's the, the Italians, they can tomatoes in grandma's basement. <laughs> and yeah, then... no, we practice our handwriting <laughs> and like <laughs> how we served people at dinner and stuff like that. That's, yeah, good to know. thought that was completely normal. I thought everybody did that. Isn't that, isn't that the darndest thing about growing up? And then, you know, because we're everyone, not everyone, but kids are in a bubble and they, they only know their own reality and then they get outside of the bubble and it's like, oh, everyone doesn't, you know, do that. Yeah, yeah. I think it really becomes clear at college because you're exposed to so many different people and so many different ways of doing things. Because I think mm-hmm. even like at school, you don't get kind of an intimate examination of people like you do at college because you're living with those people 24-7. So yeah, I think in college it really became clear to me like what was typical and what was kind of like 
your own specific upbringing. Mm-hmm. Did you, before college, had you familiarized yourself with mental health much? No, not at all. Oh, wow. So I guess looking back then on those high school or early years, do you have things that stand out to you about like, oh, I was actually upset about this thing, but I had no way to identify it at the time? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, I think I, knowing what I know now about anxiety and how it manifests, I think I had anxiety from a really young age. Like I have distinct memories of like being super afraid that someone would break into my house and kidnap me. And it like got to the point where I was like afraid of sleeping in my own room, like, like past Mm. the age where that's kind of like a typical fear. Like I had to, my parents installed like um, light blocking window shades because I was really afraid of the car headlights passing by. Cause I was convinced each car was like a would be kidnapper. Um, Mm. and just like stuff like that that only makes sense to you in retrospect like as a kid you're kind of just you have no idea what's normal and what's not and your parents probably think that it's just kind of like one of your nuances in your behavior because each kid is different but I have like was really really I would go around and like make sure all the doors were locked like triple check the doors stuff like that I think makes it clear that I had anxiety and then Um, In high school, I was super, super um, intense about grades and like academics and getting into a good college and performing well extracurricularly and having good relationships with my teachers. Um, Mm. And it took such a toll on me that like I would come home from school and I would just like sleep until like 8 p.m. And then I would eat dinner and then I would do homework until like late in the night and then I would it all again the next day but i was like completely depleted of energy and i just thought that was like part of the student experience and i like ended up graduating number one in my class but i so i kind of like Mm. thought that that was what it took to do that and i don't say that in like a self-grandizing way but i say it to like kind of put into context like i thought that was a sacrifice i was making in order to like achieve something good and because I achieved it and got there through a lot of anxiety, I thought that was normal. And that's what it took to accomplish something that was worth accomplishing. So I didn't like put the two and two together until I was in college and I had like a really intense, almost like an anxious breakdown. And that's when I finally saw a therapist and a psychologist and was diagnosed with anxiety. Wow. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> developmentally, did that because that, that fear of that kidnapping from a, for a child must be really intense. Like, I mean, how, how does, does that affect, how does that affect the feeling of security at home? Right. Cause if you're, it's almost like it takes away the, the safety of the home. Yeah. You know? That's a good point. It's like home is supposed to be the place where you can recharge. And if you're anxious there, then you're not recharging at all. So I mm. think that you're, you're probably right. I think that there's a big connection there in the sense of like, you're not able to really ever kind of replete yourself on your own. So once you had that experience and you decided to seek some structured assistance, how was it communicating that to your peers and your family that, Hey everybody, I, I, I think I, I know I have anxiety. Yeah, I think, the way it happened was I was in my last year 
I was in my fourth year of school and it was spring semester. So I was about to graduate and I had just gotten back from, I spent the fall semester in Israel working on a kibbutz. Um, Mm. And I was, I got really sick. Like I had mono and I had strep throat in like a severe cold, kind of like really nasty combo all at once. And it was right before midterm exams and I couldn't study but I got so anxious about being sick and not being able to study that I like couldn't get out of my own head. And I like stopped eating for like two weeks and I, I just didn't go to my exams because I didn't feel prepared, but I also couldn't like email them. I didn't have the mental capacity to like reach out and explain the situation. And I would just like lay in bed and I was just super anxious the entire time. So um, my parents were really good about like, checking in with me and coming to get me and I would go home for the weekend and they would just take care of me that way. And they were the ones that like suggested I go see a therapist and a psychologist because it was so, it was like to the point where like it was affecting me super physically. Um, but I think for a while I had thought it was kind of um, like situation specific. Like I did it fully put it together that it was something that I would deal with for my life the rest of my life i remember Mm -hmm. my therapist said that to me once and i was super alarmed at that i like thought that was kind of a joke and like her being dramatic and that this is just temporary and i would be able to get through this afterward so for a while i kind of just like explained it as like temporary like i think that's how my parents also like talked about it to me and like to others to the extent that they Mm -hmm. did talk to others when i would talk to my peers i would at first I was like kind of ashamed of it. So I would just be like, Oh, I have an appointment when I would go to the therapist or like the psychologist, I wouldn't tell them like what it was for. So it took a while for me to like fully explain what was going on. How did it feel once you were able to communicate it? Cause I mean, right now what you're doing is pretty incredible in my eyes, you know, talking about it so openly and modeling that, you know, lack of shame, I suppose. Cause I feel there is shame built in in the culture so once you were able to talk about it freely how did that change your change your life yeah i think for me it's like as a man it's different to talk about mental health than what i imagine it is like for a woman um Mm -hmm. because of there's already stigmas about masculinity and seeking help and stuff like that but i think I had already dealt with that because I'm gay. So I feel like I had already overcome that hurdle. Like I, it didn't feel like something I had to explain and like justify my own masculinity because I'd already felt like I had done that by being openly gay. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, for me, it was like much easier to like get to the point where I could talk about mental health because I didn't have to untangle all of that uh, toxic masculinity and like how it manifests and how people see you and stuff like that. But so I kind of like thought of it as like, if something were wrong with you physically, like you would, you wouldn't hide that from people. You would tell them like, if something was wrong with your heart, you would be openly like, I have a Mm. heart condition. So I didn't really see the point in trying to hide something mental health related because it, it's like if anybody really cares, like you're, they're not interested in really knowing you or like being in your life in an intimate way. So once I was able to just like talk openly about it with a few people, it just became a lot easier to speak about it with everyone because at that point you don't want to 
hide certain things from certain people because then you have to remember what you told them and that your story adds up and that just becomes way too taxing. And it, for me, it was like reminiscent of what I did when I was in the closet. So it's not something I wanted to repeat. So I just kind of like ran with it. And now it's just like an openly part of my identity that I don't think of myself as clay with anxiety. It's just clay. And then oh, my friend has anxiety and he does X, Y, Z to cope kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the goal, right? Is to get these mental health situations out in the air and destigmatized. Yeah. And it's especially interesting with, with men because we are told, we are told to not ask for help or seek help. And I think that's an interesting distinction with your experience coming out and how that prepared you. And it makes me realize too, that for the straight men out there, this may be the first time in their lives that they have had to detangle that, that mess, you know? Yeah. And it's a lot to kind of like think about and do on your own. And also there's a lot of forces at play that you might not even be able to identify yourself that are affecting how you view your own situation and your own behaviors and are impacting your interactions with other people. So it's a lot. Um, I think that the more we talk about it, like you said, the more relatable it becomes and the less earth shattering it feels to people because other people have done it before them. They don't feel like they're the first one of their friend group or people that they know that have kind of talked about it. It's there. There's more animity in that kind of situation where, because other people have come before them and things have turned out fine. For sure. And I think that's vital too, to hear those stories, to normalize it. The reason I was put on this path is because I had friends in high school with serious mental illness and that kind of put it on my radar. But then interestingly, last year in lockdown was the first time I experienced, you know, anxiety in my life. Mm-hmm. And it still totally threw me through a loop, you know, despite my, how prepared I thought I was. And yeah, so that was, I think something I learned is to give myself the the space and the, I guess, respect to deal with it, you know, to, to not judge myself. And, and I actually had a friend who told me something really poignant and, said that Thomas, you know, why don't you love yourself and give yourself the the space and respect that you give everybody else, you know? Yeah. Cause I was kind of beating myself up about it. Cause I was, I was tangled up too in this. Obviously I, I am relatively detangled from the, the toxic masculinity or try to be, but <laughs> you know what? I was, I was proved very wrong in that moment when I had to confront my own perceived shortcomings and, and felt a lot of uh, shame around it. Well, it's, it's hard to, cause it's like, the way anxiety manifests is both mental and physical. The mental component was always easier for me to deal with because that is like how my brain is wired and it's how I've approached situations throughout my life. But it was like physical symptoms that really threw me for a loop because they affected me in such a dramatic way, like from not being able to eat for like three weeks and like always feeling on edge and like your hands trembling and like walking down the street and like feeling unstable, like that really takes a toll. So when someone is experiencing anxiety for the first time, like they have to deal with not only the mental piece, but also a physical piece if that's the way it's manifesting in them. And that's like a, probably like a really new sensation that they haven't dealt with before. So it's like really overwhelming and scary and it takes, it's a real, muscle you have to learn how to use to like talk to yourself about your anxiety because for a while it's just totally overpowering and debilitating so like 
not to mention the fact that like when you add in the masculinity component and you don't have anybody you can talk to about it and it's like not affecting your life in the sense that you can go through your day-to-day activities relatively all right without someone noticing it in in your own mind you think that that kind of justifies like telling anybody about it because it's not affecting you to the extent that it's like harming your your Mm day-to-day um Mm -hmm. i think the more people feel like they don't need to talk about it because it's not affecting their day-to-day and then the more you don't talk about it or address it the worse it gets and then it compounds and just like really takes over so i commend you for like identifying it early on for yourself and being open about it and talking about it with people to kind of address it head on thanks man yeah it was it was a learning experience and a good one i also realized just like you said i don't think it's necessarily going away you know it's probably going to come back up in a different manifestation at some point in my life and my perspective is to proactively prepare for it as opposed to ignoring it you know and then yeah. hoping it's hoping it goes away <laughs> for sure you want to do the work when you're feeling good too because when you're not feeling good you don't really have the energy to kind of proactively do the work to address your anxiety if that makes sense mm-hmm. you you don't have the energy so for sure so for somebody who is experiencing it for the first time presently or maybe has had it as part of their lives for a long time but they've never had the tools, you know, what would your first steps be for them in your own recommendation? Yeah, I think the first step is kind of recognizing the manifestation, the way it's showing up for you, because that's going to kind of address or like design how you should go about like treating it or talking about it. So like thinking about how it shows up for you, whether it's mostly physical or mostly mental, or it's a mix, um, whether it's kind of a constant state of dread or whether it's kind of like situation dependent because some people have just have anxiety about like flying or heights or like tight spaces, you know, or like Mm -hmm. social situations and those kind of have a different approach. And like, I'm not as familiar with going about how to handle that, but for someone with general anxiety, just kind of thinking about situations you've been in where it's, become radically worse or like you felt better and thinking about behaviors that you've done in the past to feel better because that was your own way of self-soothing those are kind of difficult to identify in your own Um, so I was I still like learn ways that I've dealt with it before like ways that it's manifested in the past for me when I talk to a therapist so if the person is comfortable like seeking out a therapist I think that that's a great starting point. Like it's not as intense as I think television makes it seem. And it's not as, Mm. it's like literally just kind of like a blind date, like getting to know someone um, for the first time and like talking about yourself the entire time, which is kind of fun anyway. It's like someone who's paid to listen to you and your problems. (laughs) If that's interesting to you, I mean, entrance is like covering part of it if you have it. So it's a great deal. Um, Yeah. I, or if you don't, if you don't want to go jump all the way to a like a therapist, like some having someone in your circle who you trust um, and have, you know has dealt with something like that before, I think starting there. Like a lot of my friends have come to me um, when it's kind of manifesting for the first time or like in a new way, and they're kind of overwhelmed because they know that I've done dealt with it before like it might not be the exact manifestation that i had but just like talking through the headspace that you're probably in when it's showing up is like helpful because 
at that point, you don't really know what to do. For sure. I'll, I'll link to, to the tele, telehealth teletherapy that has become much more widespread since the, the lockdown last year. It's a great option for people. Yeah, totally. Because you can just do it remotely. And I think for people need, with motivational barriers, it cuts out a lot of excuses because, you know, I can literally do it right after we hang up, you know? Yeah. And I'm not saying that you should, but like if you are feeling some kind of way about seeing a therapist, like if you're doing it from your home, you don't have to tell anyone anyway. Like no one's going to know. They're not going to see you going, leaving your office to an appointment. Like it's in the privacy of your own home. So there's that. That's right. Just like nobody has to know you're listening to the Bro Nouveau podcast, guys. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're using incognito mode to find. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. It's not going to help my marketing scheme. I don't want like targeted shaving cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazon ad suggestion. Well, awesome, man, dude. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing that, you know, quite eloquently. That was, that was pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, I wish I could say more in the realm of like what to do, because mm-hmm. I think it's so, it's so difficult. And I, it's like a cop out answer to be like, Oh, talk to someone. But like, it's so personalized and it's such a like individualized process for coming to terms with it that it's hard to offer anything else. Like, I think the, the first step is like kind of reflecting on what makes you, what makes you feel good and like what feels off, like trust your instinct of like what feels off And if you've talked to people about what is kind of their experience. Okay. So side note, one recognition that I had that something was off with me and the sense of anxiety is that like when in college, my first year of college, when I was hung over, I would cry. Like I was so wrecked emotionally the next day after drinking. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just part of a hangover. Like I didn't know. Right. And then I was talking to my <laughs> friends and I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like I was so drunk. Like I've been crying a lot today. And they're like, what the hell? Like, it's like not, that's like not right. normal. And I had no idea. So it's just like small instances like that. If that's happened to you, not probably not as drastic as crying after a night of drinking. If there's small things with like how you process things, listen to that, make note of that. And kind of like have a running like checklist of things that are a little bit like different or like unique about how you handle emotions and start there. Compare them to someone else's if you need to, or like that's a good thing to have going into a conversation with someone you trust about your own mental health journey or a professional. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So for example, if every time I talk to a certain friend, my chest gets tight and my heart rate goes up, Maybe yeah. there's something about that relationship that I need to address. <laughs> exactly. If there is a certain location, I will be honest, I didn't really enjoy my time in college. And so uh, when I would go back to school, like after go, being away from the weekend, I would also cry. And I thought that was normal too. Um, mm. But it wasn't. So if you're walking down the street and like something like is in it, some like a loud noise kind of startles you and like that leaves you feeling uneasy for the rest of your walk, there might be some anxiety there. Um, it really shows up in so many different ways. Like it's still kind of 
surprises me the way that anxiety can manifest. So I don't want to like give so many hypotheticals, but just like trust your trust yourself. There are ways in which it's showing up for you that you probably haven't noticed being in tune and mindful of your own body and experiences, I think is key. For sure. And I think there's some overlap here too with highly sensitive people, HSP, highly sensitive person. Are are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. It's pretty cool. So it's this, it's this concept. I'll read it here. A highly sensitive person is a term for those who are thought to have an increased or deeper central nervous system sensitivity to physical, emotional, or social stimuli. Some refer to this as having sensory processing sensitivity. So it kind of applies a physiological explanation to people who are very sensitive to like loud noises or an aggressive person. Huh. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I first came across it. Uh, I was whiffing on this farm in Michigan and uh, shout out to Ula, the legend. She, she uh, <laughs> introduced me to that concept. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to do some reading. That sounds kind of familiar to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll link it. Yeah, I think I think I'm an HSP for sure. But it's interesting because it, for me, it manifests in in different ways. Like, for example, things like like physical confrontation or like the realities of war. You know, like I can read about that and it doesn't trigger me. Mm-hmm. But then, say I'm with Kendall, we were on the street and we saw somebody get like taken down by the police because they were involved in altercation. Yeah, and that didn't really trigger me at all but for her it it really she was kind of disturbed by it yeah so it's interesting i I guess what i'm the point i'm getting to is that everybody has different things that can can trigger them and if they are an hsp you know there are certain things to be aware of yeah i think also like um that's a good point in that like think about things that people have accused you of being sensitive about those are probably a good starting place if you're kind of trying to understand. Accused. Ooh. Well, I think, a... I think sensitive <laughs> is like a slur because mm. I, I've been accused of being sensitive my whole life, like as a kid. And yeah. it really bothers me when people use it um, like in a derogatory way. Um, so I, I don't, I hate that word. And I, I also think it's kind of coded sometimes. Like it has misogynistic and homophobic kind of like meanings connotation on how it's used. So, hundred percent, and that that's layered in with the whole masculine conditioning too, right? Because if yeah, totally misogynistic and homophobic, dude, right? Because if it's like, oh, this person's this guy's sensitive, it's associating him potentially with being gay and as the lesser, and then also because women are supposedly more sensitive you know, air quotes. Yeah. That's also association with the lesser, right? Exactly. And really all it means is like, you're feeling something, at least how it was used. Like for me as a kid, it was always like, I was feeling something, but I didn't know how to articulate it because you're a child and you don't really know how to talk about stuff like that. It manifests in like a way in which people can't comprehend. And the only way they can deal with it is by calling you sensitive. But like, Mm. because it's seen as like a, female trait like having emotion like that for sure so to kind of transition over to the more generalized topics that we we cover most episodes the first one i want to ask you around is just about your observations of how straight men interact with women um you know when i yeah there's a lot there you know when i talk with my female female friends there's a lot of things like just faux pas 
constant faux pas. I think from your seat too, as just being someone who's kind of by default more empathetic and maybe has a different perspective than a straight man would. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Or what are your thoughts on that rather? Um, I think the biggest complaint that I hear, I feel like all of this is filtered through like women who date men. So take that with a grain of salt, I guess. But I think mm-hmm. the biggest complaint I hear is like being emotionally unavailable. So I feel like people who are listening are probably already kind of like on a journey of like thinking about how to talk about things that they might have not have talked, been able to talk about in the past. So I feel like that's a good, they're already taking steps to like be more um, wholesome. What's the word I'm looking for? Like be more self-aware. Yeah. Self-aware and like holistic. They're more holistic people when you're able to talk about emotional stuff like that. Um, So that's a, I think that's the biggest complaint I hear. And have something interesting to say. I don't know if that, it's fair. <laughs> some people it's just their personality but it's like come on like you know your audience right. too know your audience i wouldn't go into a conversation with leading with some like something that's very hobby specific if that makes sense i think a lot of straight men and women who date men are i don't know if they have the most overlapping hobbies sometimes so know your audience have something interesting to say. Know what's going on in the world to like be able to talk about a, a kind of gamut of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And also, as I have to put a plug, like as a gay man, like the gay man is a great ally for the straight man who is interested mm-hmm. in a woman. So definitely utilize that. I think that's true. For females that I have, female friends that I have that are like uh, who have a lot of gay male friends, I think that it's a real we're the real gatekeepers sometimes like you have to be able to form a connection and treat us like real people and not like uh, a weird sidekick or character right. of, a, of a person so um that is so true we can advocate for you <laughs> oh absolutely i can attest to that in my personal experience on both sides of like having a gay friend of a of a woman I want to talk to, you know, opening that gate. And then also the flip side of like seeing female friends who are like, yeah, this, this guy's really cool, but like he kind of treats Robbie or whomever differently and Robbie's gay. And that's a massive turnoff and it kind of sheds light on the character. So I think, yeah, that's a good starting point, right. For the D decompacting or building, stripping back the toxic masculinity is for straight guys and examine your ingrained homophobia. Totally. I think a lot of straight men are subconsciously afraid of gay men. Um, and I think that a lot of gay men in turn are also pretty afraid of straight men mm-hmm. based on, depending on how they grew up and like their experiences. Um, I think that a lot of gay men have had pretty upsetting or unsettling situations arise in their interactions with straight men. And I think that kind of it informs their relationships to this day. Um, I think that a lot of gay men are really interested in having straight male friends, but they don't know how to go about it or they feel like it's not going to ever be perceived well by the straight man. 
I, I think that's something that even I affects my relationship with. I like, I don't have a lot of straight male friends and I think it's mm-hmm. because like, I just never did growing up. Um, and I almost feel like I don't know how to make them those kind mm-hmm. of friendships. And so if there's a straight man, I feel like who's wants to be friends with the gay man. I feel like the onus is almost a little bit on them to like, make sure that it's a comfortable environment for the gay man. This might be totally. getting a little too in the weeds. No, no, I think that's I think that's gold, dude. Because that being able to have that skill set is massive for development, and it all ties into right. Because a lot of I have straight friends who ask me, "How do I be better at dating?" and "How do I relate to women?" and all these things. And it's it's around that. It's like, well, be a, a well rounded person who can be friends with a lot of people. And I also think that that's kind of a parallel to I did. I've been doing some some ally work with my high school, and and there's a kind of common thing that came up in discussing with the parents so that we had high school majority white. And then for the parents of color, they would get comments like, and the kids at sometimes too at school, like say all the black and brown kids are at a table together or the parents are parents of color at the sports game or kind of sitting closer together. And a lot of white parents or kids would say like, why are they sitting together? Why are they? Right always seeing together instead of turning the examination around and saying, well, considering this is a white environment, why am I not extending a, a, a welcoming hand? You know? Yeah, exactly. Cause I, Cause I maybe would like that if I were the minority in a, in a space. And also like the odds are you're sitting at a white table, but you're never asking why is our table white? It's kind of at that point when someone is, when someone is in a minority group, I can imagine, I can only speak to like what it's like to grow up as a gay man but I'm also white. So I, I have that privilege and I so I don't know what it's like to be a member of a racial or ethnic minority. Like as a gay person, when I'm in a straight environment, which is all, almost always, you're always kind of on red alert for like, so there's always that like worry at the back of your mind. Like, how am I being perceived? How are they feeling about like interacting with me? Like, am I being too gay? Am I, mm do they think I'm interested in them? If it's a game, if it's a straight man, like so, Ugh. all of that is like built in subconsciously. And that kind of manifests in like, you want to be around people that you have a shared experience with. And I think you're right. that more work needs to be done when you're a member of the majority group to be inclusive and be proactively interested in people, but it needs to be authentic. I don't want it to be, patronizing or like tokenizing at all. Like I want it. if you're interested, you're interested and it's an authentic interest then go for it. Like be more inclusive and interactive and appreciative of people who share experiences with you and listen to people when they are sharing something that went wrong. Like for gay people, they generally share for gay men. I think um, they use humor as a coping mechanism a lot. So if your gay friend, gay male friend is like, sharing something that like happened to them and it's like at its core, it's like a bad story, like something bad happened to them, but they're doing it in like a, uh, a humor using a humor lens to tell that story. Like that's just their way of coping, but like treat it as a bad story. Like that's something shitty that happened to that, your friend. But like, just cause your friend is like wanting to laugh it off. Like I think deep down it really hurt them and otherwise they wouldn't be talking about it. So like listen to those kind of stories and like, like, be respectful that they're sharing that with you and like do what you can to make it better to the extent that you can like 
do something to prevent that kind of behavior moving forward. Right. That's a, that's a good empathetic skill set. You know, if someone is sharing a serious or, you know, unfortunate story with you, hold that space for them and respect what they're saying. Like recognize the weight of it, I think is huge. Like don't let the fact that it's told like with humor or like self-deprecation or whatever, kind of like wash away the, like the core of what happened. Like, I think that is like you said, it's probably a skill set that has to be learned, but like, just like be, be reflective when someone says something, think about why they're sharing it or like, is it some, is it someone who's normally a little quiet, like in their speaking up, like recognize that they're kind of deviating from their normal behavior and think about why and think about um, what that means for that person specifically. Boomfa, dropping some knowledge. I like it, Clay. Thanks, man. I just learned something right there. Right on, right on. <laughs> All right, man. We're gonna we're gonna slide on over to our last segment, the three things game. And this is a game, uh, knowledge sharing, wisdom game, where we each pull a card and there's a question. It says, "What are three things you have learned from X, Y, or Z?" Okay. So, Clay, what month is your birthday in? April. Okay, so I'm up because April has passed us. So I will go first. What are three things you have learned about anger is my question. Ooh. First reaction is it, it, it can be a positive force. Anger is propelling, it is energizing, and it is a fire in my belly. You know, anger promoted me to start this podcast because I was, oh. I am sick of unaware dudes being dickheads all the time. You know, and I'm you know, <laughs> and I'm trying to package it, trying to package it in a more trying to uh, heal them. Yeah, exactly. And and I also am learning and recognizing my own ingrained misogyny, homophobia, racism. You know, that is part of my conditioning that I'm working working down. So I think first thing it can be a positive. Uh, second thing is that it can also be very off putting, right? And I have been in those situations where I'm really fired up about something and share, and I'm passionate about it, but because of like all the things we've talked about today, it can be very off-putting for people. So even if I'm using anger as an outlet, I need to be aware of my audience and the impact my words have. Right. Because intent and impact are always kind of two different things. Yep. hundred percent. Lastly, I would say this is more of an observation, but I think if anger goes unchecked, it can be really destructive. And luckily I haven't experienced that in my own life too much, but I am aware of that. And I, I, I never want to be in a position where I, my anger is a destructive force and, and, and negative to the people around me. Yeah, that's admirable. Those are all really good. Now I'm scared for my three. <laughs> <laughs> is it, can it be, is it like a really philosophical topic? Like, no, anger, no. Hopelessness, well, well, the, can it be like, what have I learned the, from watching TV? Yeah. I mean, they're all kind of, you can go as deep as you want. Okay, okay. You know yep. me, I'm a, I'm a sap, so I love that. But you can go any direction you want. Here's Deal my card. What are three <laughs> things you would like to tell the world? Wow. Interesting. Okay, I know we've talked about being gay a lot, so I don't, I don't want to, like, beat this home. But uh-huh. I think, like, something that straight people don't always know about being gay is that it's, like, so incredibly lonely. Like, growing up, you are born into a world that like isn't built for you like when we were kids like there was no such thing as gay marriage like that wasn't even on the table like you had no idea that that was even a possibility for you 
and that really affects you. Like it affects kind of like how you feel about a lot of social interactions. So I would, I would say that like, that's something that I don't think is understood by a lot of people. Second, I think that at the beginning of the pandemic, there was all of these conversations about like what the pandemic means and like where we'll go from here and like what changes will be made. And here we are like a year later, over a year later. And I don't think we have been intentional about how things have evolved. And I don't think much has changed. Maybe I'm just being kind of cynical and negative, but I'm not sure that we have been as intentional as we would like to have been or people sought to be at the beginning of the pandemic. So that's something that's been on my mind lately. And I think that I want people to reflect on what that means in their own lives. And like, if they could make some small changes in their day-to-day life, that would be good. And the third, um, Survivor is still on the air. still (laughs) being recorded. We just, I say we as like I'm a member of the production team. We just wrapped up season number 40. Season season 41 is on its way. Um, (laughs) I'm tired of that question when I say my favorite TV show is Survivor. Yes, it is still on the air. Millions of people (laughs) are still enjoying it. It's uh, the OG daddy of reality competition-based television and it is such a nice examination of a microcosm of American society. Ah, preach. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah, Clay. I wanted to end on something light. Yeah, some comedic relief is always good. Clay, thank you so much for being on the Bro Nova podcast and sharing your wisdom, man. That was awesome. Yeah, I loved being a bro for the first time. Uh, you're a bro in our hearts <laughs> no but it's been All great right. I really enjoyed it thanks for having me hell yeah of course man alright folks there you go give it up for Clay thank you to him for taking the time out to speak with us I hope that was impactful and helpful for everybody out there hit that notification button to get the new episode next Thursday check us out on Instagram at bro nouveau pod. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next Thursday on the bro nouveau podcast.